Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Neil Chilson about the backfire effect of using control as a leader. Neil Chilson, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, John. Yeah, it is a pleasure to be with you. I'm super excited to have a nice conversation with you today. We're going to be focusing on the backfire effect of using control as a leader. Now, there are all these different styles and approaches to leadership. And depending on the context and the situation, there might be a time and a place for more of a command control kind of a an approach in leadership. But generally speaking, when we're just talking about the day-to-day running of an organization where that we want to be innovative and creative and continue to push the envelope and drive value to the market, command control isn't really the best approach. Uh, So we're going to unpack that a little bit and talk about how that will backfire for you and really what we can do instead of that kind of an approach as we try to effectively lead dynamic teams and organizations. As we get started, I just wanted to share Neil's bio with everybody. Neil Chilson is a senior research fellow for technology and innovation at Stand Together and the former chief technologist at the Federal Trade Commission. In his current role, he spearheads Stand Together's efforts to encourage a culture that embraces innovation as well as a regulatory environment that enables it. He holds a law degree from the George Washington University Law School and a master's degree in computer science from the University of Illinois He received his bachelor's degree in computer science from Harding University. Chilson is a regular contributor to to multiple news outlets, including the Washington Post, USA Today, Newsweek, Seattle Times, and Morning Consult. Uh, So wonderful. I could go on and on and on about your background, but is there anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of your background or personal context before we dive on in further? Well, just really quick, the, the ideas that uh, are captured in my book, Getting Out of Control, uh, that talk about this idea of uh, control and the backfire it can have uh, as a leader started when I was very young. So the, uh, my interest in computer science and complexity theory, these ideas of emergent order, uh, go way back. And I, I didn't really know how they applied to the policy world because I wasn't thinking about those issues at that time. I was just fascinated by the pretty pictures often that some of these computer programs could generate from very simple rules. Um, uh, and But you know, it's been a consistent theme throughout my, my work in computer science and in the policy space that complex systems um, are unpredictable. They're, they're challenging to lead within, but they're also extremely powerful. And, and as leaders, uh, we should think really hard about how we can operate well in those environments. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, so, so let's dive on in a little bit more and talk about control um, and feel free to reference it in relation to your book. Um, but what do you mean by this idea of control and why is it often a fruitless effort when it comes to 
leadership within an organization where we want innovation and continual development. Well, I think the idea of control is um, that when you as an individual take an action that you um, expect a very specific reaction from the world, uh, whether that world be your employees, your colleagues, uh, your customers maybe, um, in the policy space as a, a regulatory official, it might be from the, the companies that you're regulating. Um, and control is this sense that when I do something, I know what the reaction will be. And so I can, I can, uh, I can send a signal to the world and the re response will be something that I created, that I caused. And so it's this causal connection. And um, I think often when we think about our position in hierarchies, whether it be in, uh, you know, especially in companies uh, or government organizations, we often think of hierarchy as imposing control or giving us control, that we have control over the people who are lower in the hierarchy than us. But often that control is an illusion. So you, you, met, you referenced early on that uh, control and command, command and control approaches may have some certain situations in which they're useful. Um, and that can be true. But even in those situations, often what the control that we have is control that has sort of ceded to us by the people that we work with. They have agreed in some sense that we have control. And so uh, even, even control that in those situations is often a product of a, an emergent process of culture that creates a culture in which somebody at the top is the one who makes all the decisions and everybody must follow those. I think the typical model might be one that we think of in the military. But there's really good examples of even in the military that type of control breaking down uh, surprisingly due to the uh, emergence of new technologies. And then I'd be happy to talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. And the technological piece, I think is, is a core component to this conversation, but I also appreciate how you highlighted kind of the illusion of control. <laughs> we have this faux sense of control. Uh, we, we, you know, human beings like to have a sense of order and control and feel like things are predictable. And we like to feel like if we do X, Y will happen. Um, but we, we know that the world is much more complicated than that. And so we have to learn to be comfortable with complexity. We need to uh, be comfortable with the messiness uh, and, and, and just lean into it. Uh, of course, we need to prepare and we need to uh, plan strategically and we need to do all those things. But we just need to recognize that there's going to be constant pivoting, constant adjustments, and that the sense that we can control something uh, is, is rather elusive and really, you know, kind of an artifact <laughs> of, yeah. of something that we just, we like to pretend that we have. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You know, as storytelling creatures, I think, uh, we like, we like to position ourselves in a narrative, right. And the narrative that we often say is I did X and Y happened. I must've caused that. And in complex systems, um, what we know is that the results are very, um, multi-causal. And so teasing out any one particular person's actions as causing something can be very, uh, very difficult. But it, it is a nice, that's a, that's a difficult story to tell. And so the story we tell is, 
you know, I sent out this command, I changed the structure of the organization, uh, and I boosted profits by X, Y, and Z, right? So um, even though that was a process that involved many, many complex uh, uh, decisions by many, many different people, not just us. And, and so that illusion, uh, while helpful as a storytelling mechanism, can actually be a barrier to uh, adopting a, a, a realistic strategy to accomplish your goals. It can, it can sometimes be directly counterproductive. Uh, the example, one of the examples that I give in my book is you know, General McChrystal, again, back in the, in the military when he was dealing with Al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, because the technology allowed every single decision essentially by uh, special task force forces or special operators out in the field to relay information back to him, there was this sort of perceived uh, assumption that he should weigh in on every decision that they make, every critical decision that they make. Um, you know, back in like the Civil War era, if you sent out a, a team to do something, there was no way for them to realize, relay back information to you in that real-time way. And so that illusion of control was sort of solid, right? Like you'd be like, I told them to do something, they went out, but like, and they did, they did it. But what they really did was probably something quite different than you would have known as the general. Um, at least tactically. And, but General McChrystal dealt with this, this issue where he could get the information back. So it's sort of like, he talks about it, how it like fed his ego as a leader to basically weigh in on all these really important like moment, momentary decisions. But what he quickly realized is he wasn't bringing any additional value to this decision-making, right? He was basically rubber stamping the people who had the local knowledge. And while it might feed his ego and it might feel good and it might seem to be consistent with the uh, the command hierarchy of the military, it was actually slowing down the decision-making in the field. And it meant that they weren't keeping up with the enemy. And so he worked hard to do the proper role of a leader, which is to instill the values and the, the basic rules for engaging uh, with the enemy. And then, um, and then allowing the people who were closest to the problem to make decisions without having to constantly feed back information to him. Uh, and that sped things up. So uh, when we try to seize control too tightly as leaders, even if it's technically possible, it can often be a, a barrier to us achieving the goals that we actually have. Yeah. And, and even if he did have something to add in terms of value to the decision-making, <laughs> it, it still has negative effects on the ability of those other individuals who are out in the field actually implementing and doing the work, right? And I imagine that's what we'll get into a little bit more as we talk about some of the backfire effects. Um, but before we go there, I wanted uh, to explore a little bit with you about this idea of the emergent order. I know that's something mm -hmm. you discussed. Can you frame that up for us and explain a little bit about what, you know, what examples we see historically uh, around the emergent order? Yeah, so emergent order is this idea that, um, uh, the sum is more than uh, the, the total of its parts, that there is something about a, a system that is complex that can create more um, value by interactions than it can from just um, uh, the individual parts. So the example I often give is, you know, think about being at uh, a football game. I think we had some big ones over the weekend. Uh, and, and, you know, the fans all 
at the same time, they raise these placards that say like go team or roll tide or something. Um, that's an example of designed order. Uh, somebody came up with that plan, the schematic, and they gave it to everybody across the whole uh, system. Um, then think about the, the wave if you're at a sporting event. The wave, uh, you might have some people who sort of instigate it, but every individual in the crowd who is participating is sort of following their own like simple set of rules. Am I excited? Is the person next to me standing up? Do I want to stand up? Do I have food in my lap? Yeah, they're using their local knowledge to decide whether or not to do a very simple action, stand up or not. But the result is a process that is a, a complex pattern of coordination across many, many people. And you can see that pattern and no one controls that pattern. Even the people who started it, they don't really control the wave. Uh, it, it can die out suddenly or it can keep going for a long time, just depending on this collective sense of all the people who are participating. And so that's a good example of individuals following these very simple rules, but the result being something complex and uh, creating something that is emergent order. And so that's what I mean uh, by emergent order. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Yeah, and, and I like uh, what you referenced at the beginning with technologies where you can put in some simple instructions and create these really fascinating images that again seems like something that relates to this idea of emergent order um and i i think of um oh i'm i'm blanking on the name the mathematical component where the mathematical term where you can zoom in further and further yeah. and further and further fractals What's that called? yeah fractals, fractals. yes yeah fractals. fractals are an example of these very simple um uh you know those those very complex pictures are generated by relatively simple mathematical formulas that are repeated over and over. So where you take the output and you feed it back in as an input, and that creates these feedback loops and these, these structures that are um, uh, similar at all levels. So you can continue to zoom in and, uh, and even at the deeper uh, detail, they're very similar uh, and they're very complex. And so um, that's, Fractals was uh, exactly what I was talking about when I said like pretty pictures as a kid, like really drew me into this stuff. I was fascinated by the idea that you could create something that 
had so much detail and so much nuance, but with only these very simple rules. Yeah, and I don't claim to be an expert in chaos theory, but I remember learning uh, early on in the early 2000s about chaos theory and fractals were you know, one of the examples of that. And I just think about how this relates back to this idea of control or this, this uh, perception of control, but it's really ordered chaos, <laughs> the emergent order that comes out of the chaos. Anyways, I, I think that's all super fascinating. So let's talk a little bit na- more now about um, instances where control can actually have a backfire effect. So you gave one example uh, of this military general. Uh, do you have other examples and what could be the negative outcomes of that kind of an approach? Well, uh, I, I think we do see examples of uh, negative out. Uh, examples of control, top-down control approaches. Uh, a lot of them um, in the business context are around um, a sort of ossification of uh, the business over time because everybody is is waiting for commands from the top. They're not being, they're not generating creativity themselves. One of the examples I give in the book is um, uh, an example that comes from. Uh, Charles Koch, one of Charles Koch's books, he developed, you know, one of the largest private um, organizations, private companies in the in the country. And he talked about early on in his career coming into a division that was very much command and control, where so much time was spent essentially on completing reports uh, up to management so that management could make decisions. Um, and many of these decisions, uh, you know, Obviously, management was dealing with what Hayek calls the knowledge problem, which is uh, the need to collect information in order to make a a good centralized discussion. And Hayek calls this a problem because lots of information is dispersed among many parties. Uh, It can be um, tacit, you know, sort of like riding a bike where the person, the, the person who does the task knows how to do it, but they don't know how to explain it to somebody else in a way that is operational. And so, and it can also be not, um, you can't summarize it, right? So uh, the information can be detailed enough and complex enough that any summary of it doesn't capture some of the key nuances. And so, uh, so what, uh, what Charles noticed was in all of this time trying to solve the knowledge problem by reporting information up so that decisions could be made, it could be, it would have been much more productive to push decision-making down uh, to the employees who could then decide how, what do our customers need? What are they saying? How can I apply the resources that I have to solve that problem for customers? Um, and, uh, and I think that, uh, as an example of the power of decentralized decision-making, pushing decision-making down um, rather than trying to centralize uh, decision-making helps us solve this knowledge problem and helps us uh, actually pursue the purposes of the organization in a way that's much more effective often than uh, a command and control approach. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really great example. And I just think about the general development of our people if we want to empower our people to learn to make good decisions, uh, they, they're going to be more engaged in, and more passionate and motivated when they feel like they have more autonomy to make decisions and to implement them. And if we are constantly having to rubber stamp every decision somebody makes, the, the natural 
outcome of that for many individuals is they're just going to stop investing in the decision themselves. So many people will just kind of do the bare minimum. They'll pass it along to their boss because they just know the boss is the one who's going to make the final decision anyways. And it just doesn't even matter what they think or what they decide or what effort or uh, time they put into it. Uh, and, and so we can inadvertently uh, have this situation, this context where people don't feel psychologically safe to speak their own mind, uh, to share their own input. And we can hamstring our own attempts to develop the next generation of leaders within our organization uh, because nobody's developed the capacity to actually think for themselves and to actually implement. And yes, sometimes fail, uh, but learn from those failures uh, and then be able to, to move forward in a positive way. So I, I think there's just so many of these different types of backfire effects that can occur. Of course, not intentionally. We're not, you know, when, when we oftentimes leaders step in because they want to help because they want to guide and direct and they want to move someone in the in the right direction but we got to be really careful if we're doing that too much then we're, we're really undercutting our people's ability to learn and grow through the context they find themselves in yeah absolutely i think there's there's two key principles that i sort of uh caught from what you said that uh, that i've been thinking a lot about and one of them is the the need for humility as a leader uh, which kind of deals with that knowledge problem right like there might be, uh, I might feel like as a leader that I have a good grasp on the situation in a way that uh, I could I could contribute here. Um, that's not always the case. That's sort of the first problem. But the, the other one you're talking about there is uh, the need to see um, our organizations as as and our people and our relationships with them uh, as a process rather than just an outcome. And I think if you think about that as a leader, that my interactions uh, on this particular project aren't just about the outcome of that project. They're also about building a process within my organization that can get better at doing projects like that in the future. And that means helping build the capital, the, uh, the experience in, our, in the people that work with us um, so that they can uh, improve their skills. It's not just about solving this problem. It's about fulfilling the big picture objectives of the organization. And that can mean it might be more efficient in some ways for me to step in as the experienced leader, but that shortcuts this process, which should be our real goal as leaders of creating an organization that can solve problems um, without needing us to jump in every single time. Yeah, it's a long-term sustainability approach to the growth and development of the organization, which requires a sustainability approach to developing the people within that organization. And so, you know, if, if I feel like I need to step in because there is a major decision that has to be made or because failure really isn't an option in this particular situation, fine, that's, that's fine. And there are situations where leaders absolutely need to do that. But as a general rule on the day to day, do we need to get into all the nitty gritty details of every last thing that our people are doing? No. And in fact, we often aren't even well suited to do so because when we uh, get promoted into levels of lead leadership, oftentimes we had a certain level of technical expertise in our area, um, but very quickly that becomes obsolete or can become obsolete. And so it's the members of our team that have the technical knowledge and the skills to be able to actually carry out the work. And we, we can really uh, short circuit really good productive people by trying to insert ourselves, thinking that we might be helping when really, you know, we don't even 
actually know what we're talking about <laughs> um, and and we're undermining them in the, the other ways we've already mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Well, wonderful. This has just been a fascinating conversation and we could go on and on and on, but I note the time and I need to let you go here in a few minutes. So before we close, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how we can get, how they can get connected with you, how they can find out more about your work, your book, uh, and then give us the final word on the topic for today. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the book is called Getting Out of Control, Emergent Leadership in a Complex World. You can get it on basically any platform uh, that you can get books. Um, uh, I have a Substack where I share some of the ideas and I'm trying to build a community around these ideas of emergent leadership in a complex world. Uh, that's outofcontrol.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Neil underscore Chilson. Um, uh, yeah, and you know, uh, the, the key thing I'm trying to give readers with this book is a, a gut level understanding of the power of emergent order. Um, examples of it across society, including in corporate governance and in government, and uh, some tips. I have six principles for emergent leadership in the book that, that will help you apply that, that idea to your, your daily life, whether it's uh, in the public sphere, whether it's as a leader in an organization, or even in your, your own personal life with habit building. So uh, thanks so much for having me on, John. I've really appreciated it. And I hope your audience uh, will engage with these ideas and, and get something out of them. Wonderful. Thank you, Neil. It has been a real pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Neil can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.